Section 4 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 1, Part 4. In the course of this negotiation, Bassompierre was, in a cabinet council, given a memorial of the causes of complaint that King Charles had to bring against the Queen's French domestics, against the Bishop of Monte, Henrietta's almoner, who was a duplice, a near relative of the wily and inimical Richelieu, then rising into power, was brought in this document an accusation of fomenting plots in england moreover the queen's french domestics discovered all that passed between the king and her majesty and labored to create in the gentle mind of her majesty a repugnance to all that the king desired or ordered and they fomented discords between their majesties as a thing essential to the welfare of their church they endeavored to inspire her with a contempt for england a dislike of its habits and made her neglect the english language as if she neither had nor wished to have any common interest in that country they subjected the person of a queen to a monastic obedience in order to oblige her to do many base and servile acts beneath the majesty of a queen and very dangerous to her own health witness what has befallen a person of distinction among her attendants who died thereof and complained at her death that that was the cause of it that is the queen's french lady died of the severities of the penances inflicted on herself not on her royal mistress the narrative is not very luminous on this point as to the penances imposed on the young queen they are reported in a letter of court news with which we must interpolate the grave state paper which says the same but in duller language and if we may credit the affirmation of bassompierre and the queen herself one narrative is as inventive as the other no longer agone than on st james's day these hypocritical dogs made the poor queen walk afoot from her house to st james's that is the palace to the gallows at tyburn thereby to honour the saint of the day in visiting that holy place where forsooth so many martyrs had shed their blood in defence of the catholic cause had they not also made her dabble in the dirt in a foul morning from somerset house to st james's her luciferian confessor riding by her in his coach yea they had made her spin to eat her meat out of treen dishes to wait at table and serve her servants and if these rogues dared thus insult over the daughter sister and wife of great kings what slavery would they not make us the people undergo bassompierre spent the beginning of november in conferences respecting the above statements between the queen the king and buckingham and in each conference they had a separate quarrel he inquired of the queen how he was to answer the various particulars which had been offensive to the king as to the wooden trenchers and other trifling matters she either disdained to reply to them or admitted them by silence but in regard to the pilgrimage to the gallows at tyburn she most earnestly denied it bassompierre made so animated a harangue before the privy council when he defended henrietta from having committed this absurdity that he lost his voice for several days a very serious loss for this vivacious foreigner who however in his journal expresses himself dubiously as to whether his affliction was owing to his exertions in behalf of the queen or to a london fog in november to which poor man he was not accustomed in his speech he declared that the queen had instructed him to say 
that the king her husband had permitted her to gain her jubilee in the chapel of the fathers of the oratory at st james that is st james within a month of her arrival in england which devotion had terminated with vespers and as that time the heat of the day was past she had walked in the park of st james's and in the hip park which joins it a walk she had often taken in company with the king her husband but that she made it in procession or that she ever approached within fifty paces of the gallows or that she made there any prayers public or private or that she went on her knees there holding the hours or chaplets in her hands is what those who impose these matters on others do not believe themselves this oration lasted an hour and when i came out says bassompierre in his journal i showed the queen the fine statement they had made to me and what i had replied and protested with which she was much obliged it is proper here to observe that out of the numerous witnesses who must have beheld henrietta performing such extraordinary genuflections at the gallows tree not one was examined before the privy council therefore the statement is utterly without evidence indeed every person who reads this well-known accusation against the queen of charles must have wondered how her majesty could have arrived on a summer's evening at the gallows barefoot without being followed in such a public place by a vast mob of gazers but it seems the gibbet with all its foul and ghastly garniture was a perennial ornament abutting on hyde park and there it stood near where the fashionable throng now turned into the ring at cumberland gate a horrid terminus to the vista assuredly always within the view of their britannic majesties when they chose to enjoy the cool of the evening by taking their accustomed walk from st james's park to hyde park the national gibbet fed as it was from the era of henry the eighth with almost daily food was marvellously convenient for henriette's pilgrimage had she ever taken it but she indignantly repelled the idea she acknowledged she had often walked that way with her husband but denied that she ever approached the gibbet nearer than fifty paces what times what manners what an admission to us it appears still more abhorrent that a fair royal bride in her honeymoon leaning on the arm of her loving lord should take a summer stroll for pleasure within fifty paces of a gibbet than that she should approach it in sorrow and humiliation to meditate on the agony sin and grief that had throbbed at the hearts of the miserable fellow-creatures who had perished on the horrid spot the circumstance that such an appendage abutted to the royal parks more than ever marks the brutality of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries which had receded in common decency from the era of the early plantagenets probably the young queen when she first beheld the grim object so near her courtly promenade crossed herself in a fright and repeated some latin prayer or abjuration and from thence the whole story grew perhaps she did so whenever she saw it who can wonder this circumstance occasioned the removal of the gibbet with general approbation to the vicinity of paddington the gallant bassompierre remained for some time an unwilling mute having by his own account lost his voice in her majesty's vindication but the vindication only set the belligerent parties quarrelling again with greater vivacity than ever the painstaking ambassador had to commence anew his series of separate visits and his course of suitable exhortations to the queen the king and buckingham i came continues bassompierre in the morning to somerset house to meet the queen who had arrived there to see the lord mayor go on the thames 
on his way to Westminster, to be sworn in, with a magnificent display of boats. There the queen dined, and afterwards got into her coach, and placed me at the same door with her. The royal coaches were huge fabrics, gaudily ornamented. They had no glass yet, but were sheltered with leather curtains. They were capable of holding eight inside passengers, two of whom were perched in niches, called boots, at each door, places usually reserved for some favored guest or friend of the king or queen. The Duke of Buckingham, by the queen's commands, likewise got into her coach, observes Bassompierre. And we went into the street called Shipside, or Cheapside, to see the ceremony, which is the greatest made for the reception of any officer in the world. While waiting for the Lord Mayor to pass, the queen played at Primero with the Duke, the Earl of Dorset, and me. Afterwards, the Duke of Buckingham took me to dine with the Lord Mayor, and after the Lord Mayor's dinner, I went to walk in Moorfields. The early hour of the Lord Mayor's dinner may be judged by Bassompierre, finishing this festival day, November 9th, with an evening walk in Moorfields, then a sort of garden or park of recreation for the citizens. In the course of a few days, Bassompierre considered that he had arranged all the disputed points, and made a fair agreement for the future comfort of the queen, the particulars of which he details thus in his letter to the French government, addressed to Monsieur de Herbault. You will now find, Monsieur, that the satisfaction is complete, and that the queen, his majesty's sister, rests infinitely obliged with what I have done for her, and deeming herself content and happy, she lives now with the king in perfect amity. First, she has re-established, and this is for her conscience, a bishop and ten priests, a confessor and his coadjutor, and ten musicians for her chapel. That at St. James's is to be finished with its cemetery, and another is to be built for her at Somerset House, at the expense of the king, her husband. In attendance on her person, she will have, of her own nation, two ladies of the bedchamber, three bedchamber women, one lingerie, and a clear starcher. In regard to her health, two physicians, an apothecary, and a surgeon. For her house, a grand chamberlain, a squire, a secretary, a gentleman usher of the privy chamber, one of the chamber of presence, a valet of the privy chamber, a baxter groom, that is, a baker. All the officers of the mouth and the goblet are to be French. Here were foreign domestics, sufficiently numerous to cause Henrietta to be the most unpopular queen consort that ever shared an English throne in the best of times. The establishment was, however, scanty, in comparison with the army of impracticable people located at the English court on the strength of the first treaty, when they amounted to more than four hundred. The queen was not really in quite so complacent a state of mind as her father's old friend hoped. A more stormy scene took place than had yet occurred. Bassompierre, out of all patience at seeing Henrietta, continued to play the vixen, after all her grievances had been redressed, told her his mind without caring for her rank. In his brief journal he notes, November 12th, came to the queen's, where the king came, who fell out with one another, and I afterwards with the queen on this account. I told her plainly that I should next day take leave of King Charles and return to France, leaving the business unfinished, and should tell his majesty, that is Louis the Thirteenth, her brother, and the queen her mother, that it was all her fault. This was the best way of settling Henrietta's mind and affairs. 
she had been told by her flattering retinue that all her little tyrannies and lovers quarrels with charles were entirely becoming to a queen and what as napoleon truly said was far better a pretty woman but the few plain words of her father's comrade informed her that she behaved unlike a wife and that he should so report her to her own family and this honest dealing secured the lovely queen nearly eighteen years of conjugal happiness with undisputed possession of a true heart that adored her till it ceased to beat a rich reward for listening to a few words of truth from a real friend the acute mind of bassompierre had fathomed the real cause of henrietta's perverse conduct he has left an observation showing the imprudence of her confidences when i had returned home father sancy to whom the queen had written about our falling out came to make it up with me that is to bring an apology for the queen's conduct but with such impertinences that i got very angry with him but whether the impertinences originated with the queen or her messenger bassompierre disposeth not henrietta had however a most imprudent habit of giving confidence without due consideration she herself told madame de motteville that her hastiness to tell her mind to all about her had been of infinite injury to herself and to the political affairs of her husband bassompierre returned to france carrying with him this father sancy who certainly always kept the queen's mind in a most mischievous state of agitation while he was near her one would have thought that bassompierre's exertions would have been repaid with the utmost approbation by his own country far from it he had behaved too honestly and told every one the truth too plainly and had avoided extremes in his mediatorial capacity too decidedly to give satisfaction to his weak and bigoted master the learned and dignified king of england could admire the calm majesty of this ambassador's reply when he asked him in the course of the recent dispute whether he had come to declare war on him i am not a herald to declare war was the noble retort of bassompierre but a marshal of france to make it when declared even the spoiled royal beauty henrietta listened to the blunt reproofs of her old friend and was grateful when her anger was over but the foolish queen mother of france and her weak son were enraged because every article of the original marriage treaty was not carried into effect bassompierre was frowned upon at his own court louis the thirteenth animated with the desire of nullifying the wise toleration his great father had given to the french protestants pressed on the siege of rochelle and the war between england and france was the result it is very doubtful whether the modified arrangement of henrietta's french household was carried into effect till after the peace with france since it is certain that the ten capuchin friars were not appointed to her chapel till the year sixteen thirty charlotte de la tremouille lady strange who having married the heir of derby had become naturalized as an english subject indubitably filled the place of one of the two ladies of the bedchamber mentioned in the french list the relationship of this lady to the heroic deliverer of holland william prince of orange rendered her less offensive to the english people than any other foreign attendant of the queen her mother the duchess de la tremouille had returned to france a few days before the ambassador departed a war with france soon after broke out 
notwithstanding which the queen enjoyed more tranquillity than when her french household was about her the king wrote on occasion of the capture of the isle of ray to buckingham who commanded on that expedition the following remarkable postscript at the end of a familiar letter i cannot omit to tell you that my wife and i were never on better terms she upon this action of yours showing herself so loving to me by her discretion on all occasions that it makes us all wonder at and esteem her meantime great enmity against king charles prevailed in france originating in the dismissal of henrietta's french retinue and the most sinister reports were circulated among the populace which was fostered by the servants of the cashiered officials all classes of the french people thought that their beautiful young princess was the victim and martyr of the heretic king this state of the public mind caused belief to be given to a very strange impostor a girl who was without doubt a monomaniac took into her head that she was the persecuted queen of england and while louis the thirteenth was carrying on the siege of rochelle presented herself at a convent at limoges and claimed the hospitality of the nuns as such she declared that she had fled from king charles and from england because she was persecuted on account of the true faith she spoke and carried herself with remarkable dignity when she was questioned she gave a very plausible description of the english court and of the great lords and ladies who composed the household of henrietta maria her statements were correct at least as far as the good people of limoges were aware for the whole of that city and neighborhood flocked to see the distressed queen who were thoroughly persuaded of her identity louis the thirteenth was exceedingly enraged at what he considered the impudence of this imposition being attempted at a time when his sister was in peace and prosperity surrounded by her own court he sent orders to the lieutenant-general of limoges to bring the girl to public trial during the whole of this process the representative of queen henrietta abated not a jot of her assumed majesty answered all questions with great presence of mind and cleverness and very coolly signed her legal examination henriette de bourbon she was condemned to make the amende honorable that is to confess her delinquency at the end of a public religious procession with a lighted taper in her hand and to be imprisoned during the pleasure of the king of france what further became of her is not known while this self-constituted double was assuming the character of henrietta in her native land the queen herself was experiencing the sweet hopes of maternity but unfortunately she could not rest contented without endeavouring to read the future destiny both of her unborn infant and herself the prophetess to whom she had recourse on this occasion was no juggling gypsy or sordid witch but a high-born lady of her court one of the most extraordinary characters of her day this was lady eleanor the daughter of the earl of castlehaven and wife to the king's attorney-general sir john davies the study of the original scripture languages and a mystical and fanatical belief of her own devising had turned this noble dame's brain so as to cause her to believe that a prophetic mantle of no little power had descended upon her under its influence she had foretold the death of her first husband to the infinite indignation of charles i how she ever obtained a second a curious autobiography does not explain regarding her inspirations she was more communicative the idea that she was a prophetess arose from finding that the letters of her name twisted into an anagram might be read in this line reveal o daniel 
Her prophetic pride was, however, somewhat rebuked by one of the king's privy council, who, having occasion to reprove her for venting some mischievous political predictions by a suitable exordium in the star chamber, very wittily attacked her with her own weapons, by assuring her that the letters which composed her name she had not rightly construed, for the real anagram should read thus, Dame Eleanor Davies, never so mad a lady. Such was the prophetess to whom Queen Henrietta applied, to read the destiny which was in mercy withheld from her. The odd dialogue that passed between her majesty and the prophetess is best given in Lady Eleanor's own words. About two years after the marriage of King Charles I, I was waiting on the queen as she came from mass or evening service, to know what service she was pleased to require from me. Her question was, whether she should ever have a son? I answered, in a short time. The queen was next desirous to know what would be the destiny of the Duke of Buckingham and the English fleet, which had sailed to oppose her brother, and relieve the siege of Rochelle. I answered, Lady Eleanor continues, that the Duke of Buckingham would bring home little honor, but his person would return safely, and that speedily. This reply gave little satisfaction to the Duke's enemies, who would have been best pleased to have heard of his death. The queen then returned to her hopes of a son, and I showed that she should have one, and that for a long time she should be happy. But for how long? asked the queen. For sixteen years, was my reply. King Charles coming in at that instant, our discourse was interrupted by him. How now, Lady Eleanor, said the king, are not you the person who foretold your husband's death three days before it happened? To which his majesty thought fit to add, that it was the next to breaking his heart. And probably most husbands will be of the opinion of Charles I. Although the king had thus successfully cut short the conference with Lady Eleanor, he could not prevent the maids of honor from crowding round that prophetess, and assailing her with the questions which their royal mistress had intended to ask. Lady Eleanor informed these ladies, It was indeed true that the queen would shortly have a son, but it was no less true that it would be born, christened and buried, all in one day. Perhaps this vexatious prophecy was made on purpose to plague the king for his interruption and sharp reproof. Probably the evil prediction of this mad gentlewoman dwelt on the mind of the young queen. Others say she was hurried and alarmed by some trifling accident. She was, however, taken very ill, and rather unexpectedly gave birth to a son, May 13, 1628. A contest took place between Charles I and the queen's confessor, whether the heir of England should be baptized, according to the Church of England, or the Church of Rome. But the king carried his point, and the boy was named Charles James, by Dr. Webb, the chaplain in attendance. As the royal babe had been born a little before its time, it was in a languid state, and died the day of its birth, an hour after its baptism, and was buried just before midnight, by Dr. Laud. The king forbade the queen to consult Dame Eleanor any more on the destiny of their offspring, but if we may believe the testimony of the Sibyl herself and the reports of the day, this prohibition only made her majesty more eager for the forbidden conference, when, in a short time after, she again had hopes of maternity. Lady Eleanor plumed herself very much on the fulfillment of her divination regarding the death of the queen's firstborn, and forthwith vented such a tirade of impertinent prophecies on politics, 
religion and affairs in general which did not concern her that king charles much annoyed at her proceedings sent mr kirk one of the gentlemen of his bedchamber to complain to her husband and desire him to make her hold her tongue but this was a piece of discretion seemingly beyond her own power neither could her husband ever succeed in controlling that unruly member nevertheless the king's dutiful law officer sir john davies did all he could to impede the promulgation of his lady's prophecies by throwing a large bundle of them in manuscript behind the fire the king's messenger proved a very unfaithful one for after delivering his royal master's message he added a request on his own account to know if the queen's second child would be a son and i says lady eleanor unwilling to send him empty away assured him of a prince and a strong child which he not sparing to impart the news was solemnized with bonfires this last is a piece of perversity almost too ridiculous for belief how thoroughly tormented must the king have been with the absurdity of his messenger who when sent to reprove lady eleanor's conjuring spirit took the opportunity of exciting her to exercise it anew by the request of his queen the sudden death of buckingham by the stroke of a fanatic's dagger august sixteen twenty eight removed one to whose influence the queen attributed all the differences which had occurred between herself and her husband it is certain that the matrimonial happiness of the royal pair improved after the decease of this powerful minister the queen was little more than eighteen her reason had not been cultivated and her tastes were as yet childish among other frivolities she had a great fancy for dwarfs and was a noted patroness of those mannequins one of them proved something like a historical character and about this time stepped out of a cold pie into her majesty's service this incident occurred in one of the royal progresses when charles and henrietta were entertained by the duchess of buckingham the queen was induced to partake of a noble venison pasty in the centre of the table when some of the crust was removed the little man geoffrey hudson rose out of the pie and hastened to prostrate himself before her majesty's plate entreating to be taken into her service she was greatly diverted with this odd addition to her retinue especially at the mode of his appearance he was then but eighteen inches high a gulliver among the brodigagians and almost as accomplished a character the queen entertained him as her dwarf par excellence although according to the taste of her era she was already provided with a pair of these little monsters whose marriage was celebrated by the courtly strains of waller master geoffrey proved a very valiant and sensible modicum of humanity fit to be employed in state messages of small import in sixteen thirty for instance he was dispatched to france by the queen to escort over the channel the french sage femme her royal mother deemed the best to preside over her approaching accouchement the homeward voyage was disastrous a dunkirk privateer being no respecter of persons captured both the sage femme and master geoffrey and plundered them of all the rich presents they were bringing to the queen from her mother marie de medicis and what was worse the sage femme was detained in captivity till her office was no longer needed by the royal patient matters of more import at this time gave no little pain to henrietta the prospect of the royal line being continued by a roman catholic queen excited party rage in a violent degree and political pamphlets were published full of reviling epithets against her in these she was termed a daughter of heath a canaanite and an idolatress 
whose hopes of progeny could give no general joy god having provided much better for england in the hopeful issue of the queen of bohemia this idea had thus taken possession of the calvinistic party in england previously to the birth of charles the second this prince was born on the morning of may twenty ninth sixteen thirty at the palace of st james he was a strong fine babe but by no means remarkable for his infantine beauty the king rode in great state that very morning to return thanks for the birth of his heir and the safety of his queen at st paul's cathedral during the royal procession a bright star appeared at noonday to the great astonishment and admiration of the populace an accident so poetical was immediately seized by one of the learned gentlemen in the king's retinue a latin epigram with the following elegant translation was presented to him as a congratulation on the birth of the prince when to paul's cross the grateful king drew near a shining star did in the heavens appear thou that consultest with bright mysteries tell me what this bright wanderer signifies now there is born a valiant prince in the west that shall eclipse the kingdoms of the east prince charles was baptized the sunday before the second of july the same year in the chapel at st james's but not the queen's chapel as one of the newsletter informants especially notes and not without reason for henrietta maria's chapel was a retired apartment in the palace fitted up as a roman catholic place of worship the ceremony of the royal baptism was the first time performed in this country for an heir to the throne after the form prescribed in our book of common prayer laud bishop of london dean of the royal chapel officiated assisted by the bishop of norwich royal almoner the sponsors were the zealous roman catholic louis the thirteenth his bigoted mother marie de medicis and that protestant champion the unfortunate palgrave who joined in answering that the heir of great britain should be brought up in the tenets of the church of england which neither of them professed the duke of lennox the old ostentatious duchess of richmond and the marquis of hamilton were the proxies for these incongruous sponsors the duchess's gift on the occasion outwent her usual boastful profusion for she presented the prince with a jewel worth seven thousand pounds a wet nurse from wales was provided for the infant probably to keep up the old custom and promise to the principality that the first words of every prince of wales should be uttered in welsh to this nurse the ostentatious duchess presented a gold chain worth two hundred pounds to the midwife and dry nurse a quantity of massy plate and even the rockers received from her a silver cup salt and a dozen spoons the queen had very politically sent her own state carriage attended by two lords many knights and gentlemen preceded by six running footmen and drawn by six horses with plumes on their heads and backs to fetch this bountiful dowager to the christening from her house in the strand the old lady paid dear for her ride in the queen's carriage that short distance for she gave to the knights fifty pounds each to the coachman twenty pounds and to each of the footmen ten pounds the state dresses at this baptism were white satin trimmed with crimson and crimson silk stockings the lady to whom the personal charge of the prince was committed was mrs wyndham who throughout his life had extraordinary influence over him the queen possessed in a high degree that talent of writing charming little letters for which french women have always been admired one of the earliest letters from her pen which is extant is replete with the fascination of playful naivete 
It is addressed to her old friend, Madame St. George, with whom she constantly corresponded, notwithstanding her unceremonious dismissal by King Charles. This letter proves that Henrietta, despite of the proverb which affirms that even the crows think their own nestlings fair, was not blind to the fact that her boy was a fright. The likeness of some tawny Provencal ancestor of Henri Cotte must have revived in the person of the Prince of Wales, for the elegant Charles I and the beautiful Henrietta had no right to expect so plain a little creature as their firstborn. It is amusing enough to read the Queen's description of the solemn ugliness of her fat baby. No date, but written in the first year of the life of Charles II. Mame St. George, the husband of the nurse of my son, going to France, about some business of his wife, I write you this letter by him, believing that you will be very glad to ask him news of my son, of whom I think you have seen the portrait that I sent to the queen my mother. He is so ugly that I am ashamed of him, but his size and fatness supply the want of beauty. I wish you could see the gentleman, for he has no ordinary mien. He is so serious in all that he does, that I cannot help deeming him far wiser than myself. Send me a dozen pairs of sweet chamois gloves, and also, I beg you, send me one of doeskin, a game of jeancherie, one of pool, and the rules of any species of games now in vogue. I assure you that if I do not write to you so often as I might, it is not because I have left off loving you, but because, I must confess it, I am very idle. Also, I am ashamed to avow that I think I am on the increase again. Nevertheless, I am not quite certain. Adieu, the man must have my letter. Henrietta wrote another letter to her friend as follows, some time before November, 1631. Queen Henrietta Maria to Madame St. George. No date, probably just before the birth of the Queen's eldest daughter. Mame St. George. Barbaroux having asked leave to go to France for his particular affairs, I would not let him depart without assuring you of the continuation of my friendship and also to complain a little, that I have been so long without hearing news of you. I know well you may retort the same thing, but at this time I am out of London, and have no opportunities. Also, I am not a little incommoded with my size, which renders me indolent, but assure yourself that I fail not to remember you on all occasions, and that I hope you will always find me. Your affectionate friend, Henriette Marie R. Make my commendations to my niece. I am having the portraits of my children and of myself done, which I shall send to you very soon. The queen gave birth to her eldest daughter at St. James's Palace, November 4th, 1631. This infant was baptized Mary by Dr. Laud in St. James's Chapel. The queen committed the little princess to the care of Catherine, Lady Stanhope, who served her with the most attached fidelity through life. When Charles could no longer delay his Scottish coronation, the queen was invited to share this northern inauguration, which she as firmly refused as she did the ceremony of the English consecration, and she suffered her husband to depart on his northern progress alone. It is here necessary to mention that the attachment of Charles I to domestic life had caused him to neglect the royal duty of occasional progress towards the distant portions of his dominions, Queen Elizabeth had carried this usage to abuse, yet if we closely trace the causes of her popularity, it will be found that it owed much to her progresses. 
King Charles probably considered that the difference of the queen's religion excited unpleasant remarks if she visited the Protestant magnates of the land, and the furious jealousy of the whole community if she visited any of the old Catholic families. Scotland had been suffering all the pains and penalties of absenteeism since the union of the kingdoms, and these were never alleviated by the circulation of a portion of the royal revenue in that direction. Assuredly, the Stuarts had little reason, since the Gowry conspiracy, to be forward in paying a visit unarmed to one of their northern lords. The extreme poverty of the crown, owing to the refusal of the Parliament of Charles to grant him the usual tonnage and poundage, unless he put in force the penal laws against the condemned Catholic priests, limited his expenses to the most rigid economy, and royal progresses cannot be made without a certain degree of royal expenditure. The following occurrence, which took place in September 1632, increased the unpopularity of the queen to an alarming degree. On Friday, at eleven in the forenoon, Her Majesty, with her own hands, helped to lay the first two square-corner stones, with a silver plate of equal dimensions between them, in the foundation of her Capuchin's church, intended to be built in the tennis courtyard of Somerset House, which stones, in the presence of upwards of two thousand persons, were consecrated with great ceremony, having engraven upon the upper part of that plate the portraits of their majesties as founders, and of the Capuchins as consecrators. Another chapel for the queen was commenced at St. James's, but the approaching revolution ripened and strengthened, as these establishments for the Roman Catholic Church approached completion, and the personal libels on the queen became frequent and furious. The service of the Roman Catholic Church was, in the course of about two years, celebrated at these chapels with a splendor and publicity most injurious to the prosperity of Charles I. The desire of Charles I to show his preference for the Church of England perhaps occasioned his attempts to establish it in his northern kingdom. This fatal step appears to be connected with his Scottish coronation. Probably the oath which the constitution of the country required him to take was not consistent with the popular religion. Henrietta remained at Greenwich Palace during the king's absence in Scotland. It was the first separation which had occurred between the royal pair. Charles showed no little impatience at its duration. He hurried the latter part of his journey of return, and to avoid entering the metropolis, lest he should be delayed by tedious greetings. He rode across the country almost alone, from Waltham to Blackwall, where he was ferried over the river and gave his queen a loving surprise. The queen's delicate situation probably occasioned the homeward haste of the king. Within a few weeks of his return was born, at St. James's Palace, her second son, October 14, 1633. The child was baptized in St. James's Chapel by the name of James, in memory of his grandfather, James I. The new Archbishop Laud officiated on this occasion, Charles I, according to a custom prevalent in the royal family of England, since the extension of the line of York, created the child Duke of York. The queen committed him to the care of Lady Dorset. His infantine beauty, fair and blooming complexion, somewhat atoned to his mother for the ugliness of his elder brother. He was her best beloved son. King Charles destined him for the marine service of his country, and caused his education to tend to everything naval. He was named Lord High Admiral in his infancy, and the fleets of England sailed under his flag. 
no one could at that time tell that he was to be one of the greatest naval warriors the english island ever produced the queen's name was involved about this time in a desperate quarrel which took place between lord holland and the resident ambassador at paris lord weston the dispute merely related to some letters which the queen had written to her mother and relatives in france lord holland had undertaken to convey them but they fell into the hands of the english ambassador who sent them to the king great jealousy existed regarding the queen's correspondence with france especially on the subject of religion the king justified the proceedings of lord weston and placed lord holland under arrest for offering to fight the ambassador to the death the vague scandals regarding the queen and lord holland have misrepresented this circumstance this was almost the last difference that ruffled the wedded happiness of the royal pair and during their future years the fondest attachment succeeded to the gusty passion which prompted them to a series of lovers quarrels in the first days of their marriage an increasing and lovely family cemented their conjugal union henrietta was a fond mother and devoted much of her time to her nursery occasionally her divine voice was heard singing to her infant as she lulled it in her arms filling the magnificent galleries of whitehall with its enchanting cadences queenly etiquette prevented her from charming her listeners with its strains at other times sometimes little flaws of anger overclouded the serenity of her temper which all her countrywomen mention as being usually a very happy one dean swift in his history of his own times makes a malicious use of the following anecdote which he only has preserved but it was no great crime either on the side of charles or henrietta charles i in gallantry to his queen thought one day to surprise her with the present of a diamond brooch and fastening it to her bosom with his own hand he awkwardly wounded her with the prong so deeply that she snatched the jewel from her bosom and flung it on the ground the king looked alarmed and confounded and turned pale which he was never seen to do in his worst misfortunes then follows a long tirade against the uxoriousness of the king which to the cynical dean was the deepest of crimes alas charles's enemies were woefully at a loss for personal faults when they placed this at the head of the list end of section four